Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're covering three stories today, beginning with Katie Halper, podcaster and program host of The Katie Halper Show, on her investigation of the New York Times problem with Bernie Sanders, evident in its coverage, which is characterized by Sidney Ember's articles using paid lobbyists and austerity ideologues as so-called objective authorities who denounce Bernie's politics on everything from health care to education to his supposed redness. We then look at two articles in the new journal Commune, first with Michelle O'Brien, a New York City teacher and writer, who has a provocative and creative article on junkie communism that questions how the socialist project emphasizes the dignity of work as its basis, but leaves out those who are unable to maintain stable employment. And she posits a politics that includes those whose lives have been broken by the cruel conditions imposed on us all. And we then talk finally to Chloe Watlington about her powerful article in Commune, Who Owns Tomorrow? It's a devastating and revealing look at deaths of despair from opioids, alcohol, and unemployment in crumbling neoliberal America, an all-too-familiar story that has hit Chloe personally. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Katie Halper, the spectacular Katie Halper, with us. She's the host of the Katie Halper Show, which is a podcast and a WBA radio program. Her articles can be found at Rolling Stone, Vice, The Guardian, The Nation, Salon, probably many other places. Paste, I remember one of them. Fair uh, now, yeah. Yeah, and fair. This week, we're going to talk to Katie about her article in Jacobin that's reprinted in part from FAIR that details the New York Times anti-Sanders bias found among both editors and reporters alike. Her article pretty much exhaustively, I would say, documents the Sanders smearing from 2016 to the present, and she's here to explain. So, Katie, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks so much for having me back. Thank you. Um, Sadly, it's not exhaustive. That's the sad thing, is that it's it's just a part of the smears that the New York Times have inflicted on Sanders. And I actually have pages and pages and pages that I had to whittle down. <laughs> um, that's And that's the truth. I mean, I have I had to focus on, on one aspect of the smears, uh-huh. uh, which is the way that, that this one woman, Sidney Ember, uses sources in a disingenuous, dishonest way. But I have to write more about this because there's the way that passive voice is used to, to say things that aren't true about Sanders. Um, there's lots of other things we can talk about, but um, we can also start out with what I've already written. Okay, well, I just wanted to begin by saying, yeah. of course, because it was very good to hear from you last week and highlighting part of this new wave of democratic socialists who are finding their way into corners of power in the United States. But it's also interesting in light of what you're writing about here, because it's not like they're unchallenged and smeared by the mainstream media, what we call the MSM, and in particular, the newspaper of record, New York Times. We don't need to go into Tiffany Caban and and what's going on there, but we're going to talk about Bernie. And I was going to say that it's no secret for news junkies like ourselves, but also anyone who's seriously looking at the coverage of this election season that Bernie, who's been the front runner or now second to Biden, is mostly ignored or dismissed in the mainstream media, if not outright diss. So how did you begin your investigation and how did you discover who Sidney Ember is and could you share it with our listeners? 
Sure. So I remember first uh, hearing about her, actually, when a journalist named Zed Jelani noted that she quoted this woman named Tracy Seffel, and, and it was a, a pretty offensive thing in the first place that she quoted Seffel on. This woman, Tracy Seffel, said that Sanders, at the end of the day, was still a straight old white man. So uh, even though this was right when he launched his campaign, and, and as many people noted, he started talking more about his own biography than he had before in the past. Uh-huh. So in this article, which had the typical negative headline, which Ember's pieces always give Sanders, it said that he was wanted to remain in control. He maintains control. Some, she's always making him sound like he has these ulterior, sordid, ulterior, nefarious motives. But someone noticed that um, this very offensive thing that was said about Sanders, which of course totally erases his Jewish identity by calling him a just a straight, an old white man. <laughs> someone noticed that this person who Ember quoted in this piece to basically smear Sanders had worked for, at um, Ready for Hillary, the Hillary Super PAC, mm. and didn't even mention that. <laughs> so this is an article that came out in February when Bernie just announced his run, and it was called Bernie Sanders is Making Changes for 2020, but his desire for control remains. <laughs> and then Ember quoted Tracy Seffel, who was a Clintonite, and she didn't reveal that she was a Clintonite. That's when I first heard about her. And then, of course, people may remember Ember from this really... I don't know how to call I mean, it's. I think it's fair to call it despicable, reprehensible. Yeah. I don't want to understate it. <laughs> but it was about Bernie Sanders in Nicaragua. And right. I think a lot of people remember this. And the, the problem with, with reporters like Ember is that, you know, with, with Brett Steffens and Barry Weiss, their ideology is very clear. We know where they stand politically. And they have terrible positions, but it's no surprise. And they kind of wear them on their sleeves. With someone like Sidney Ember, people don't know her name. They don't really pay attention because we think, or they pretend at the times, that it's objective journalism. And it's not driven by ideology, but of course it is. And one of the worst pieces that has come out from Ember was this piece, Mayor and Foreign Minister, How Bernie Sanders Brought the Cold War to Burlington. And... Yeah, this uh, one was really, really, everybody seemed to notice this, and Bernie yeah. struck back. And so let's, yeah. I, I was almost going to end with that one, but let's go to it, because okay. it seems to me that this is the kind of old-style red-baiting, right, uh, exactly. even if it, it's presented in a slightly more subtle way. And what I was going to do, before you jumped into this part, was to talk yeah. about whether or not you thought there was any subtlety in this new coverage. But let's start with the most brazen, and we'll go back. Right. So go ahead. Okay, yeah. I was explaining the order in which I kind of heard about Ember. So it happened to be that that it was pointed out that she misrepresented one of her sources, this woman, Tracy Steffel. Then I remember hearing about her next when she wrote this atrocious Nicaragua piece, which Sanders didn't talk to her for. And then because it was so bad, he did talk to her for that. And just to give you a sense of what the piece did, it was basically presenting Sanders' support of the Sandinistas in opposition to the Contras as incriminating and problematic and a liability. And in the interview that she did following that piece, her first question, because apparently this is the most important thing, was whether Sanders, when he was in Nicaragua, supporting the Sandinistas, who, of course, the United States tried to overthrow by supporting the terrorist Contras, Ember's priority was to ask Sanders if he had heard an anti-American chant when he (laughs) attended a rally in 1985 in uh, Managua. And her follow-up question to that was, if he had heard it, would he have stayed at the rally? 
which is such an incredibly kind of like jingoistic I don't even, I mean, jingoistic and irresponsible and ignorant thing to say, and it's just so Amerocentric, you know, U.S.-centric, whatever the word would Especially be. Especially ignorant as well, you it's know, and so it's almost ignorant, as yeah. if every struggle that ever took place prior to the present was erased, and you just take the sort of conventional wisdom that's brought down from the very right wing here on the right. sort of history of how we look at these events. Right. And that was what was so shocking about this one. As you said, I mean, we can go through the other fake sources that, or the other bias sources that Ember represents, because ultimately what Ember wants to do is she wants to have people say bad things about Bernie Sanders, but they're biased people with material and ideological interests in smearing him. So she has to cover that up or else no one would take them very seriously, right? Right. So... Um, you show how her stories are very unflattering to Bernie. Right. That would yeah. be one thing. But, you know, my question to you is, do you think her critique is in any way subtle? Because she does present people and you bring out and you talk about, you know, the politics and views of third way, which I want you to explain right. to our listeners, yeah. but who they are and what they represent. But you give this one example of education activists in South Carolina and oh, this yeah. person named Jared Lodehold. Yeah. And right. Diane Ravitch herself comes back on that one. So maybe we could go there and talk about, but in yeah. the frame of whether or not this is subtle. Yeah, so then we can go back and, and build up to the um, Iran-Contras yeah. one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so another one was that was pretty amazing and that stands out. I, I, my piece goes through six of these uh, misrepresented sources that, that Ember uses to discredit, to smear Sanders. And so one of them was when Sanders very admirably came out against charter schools, which is something that the NAACP has also done. When he came out against charter schools, Sidney Ember had to write a piece about how he was wrong on that, basically. And so she quoted a woman from a charter school lobby, which I didn't even bother including because that's such an... Of course she would do that. Um, and wasn't that exciting. But what was very amusing was that she also quoted someone who criticized Sanders, who was named Jared Lodeholt, and this is what Jared Lodeholt had said. To a hammer, everything is a nail, and to Sanders, everything is an issue created by millionaires and billionaires. So that's the quote that Ember attributed to this guy, Jared Lodeholt. And according to Ember, Lodeholt is a Democratic strategist who has worked on education policy in South Carolina. But the truth is that he has no education policy that anyone is aware of or can find out about. Diane Ravitch, the education expert, when she saw this piece, she looked into it because she knows a lot of education people, including education people in South Carolina. And she Googled and found out he was a lawyer and a lobbyist <laughs> and that she could find no evidence of his involvement in education. And then what was funny is that before I wrote this article, I tweeted out, Diane Ravitch's piece on this, because she was outraged about it, as she should have been. And I tweeted out the fact that he was a lobbyist and lawyer, and this guy, Jared Ludholt, responded to my tweet and said sarcastically, Lowell, I guess if you're a lawyer or a lobbyist, you could at no point in your life work on ed policy in South Carolina. And I nicely responded to that. I mean, I wasn't rude. And I just said, oh, okay, well, since you bring that up, what is your education policy experience? Where was it and when was it? And what was it? And he said, my quote speaks for itself, and it's like a month old, because I was responding to a month later, because I just came across it. But, of course, saying my point speaks for itself is the total dodge, and I can only assume he ha doesn't have any education experience, or else he would have been 
you know, the first thing I would have done in that position is told people where I had my education experience. He, of course, doesn't because it looks like he doesn't have any. But his, his experience does include working um, as a lobbyist at Pine Street Strategies, where their clients in, include Anheuser-Busch and the National Bankers Association. And I just want to tell people that the National Bankers Association, as a lobbyist for them, Ludholt defended this sweeping rollback of Dodd-Frank banking regulations. Mm. And this was something that the critics called it the Bank Lobbyist Act because it was so friendly towards big banks. And the NAACP organized against it. Elizabeth Warren was very against it. And it made it easier, basically, for banks to discriminate against communities of color, but especially black people. And Lodeholt, as a lobbyist for the National Bankers Association, said black banks don't have the luxury of waiting on a perfect bill. If we thought the bill did substantial damage to African Americans, we would not support it. So he covered for that bill and pretended the bill, which was actually very racist, wasn't racist. So just to give you a sense of, of the types of people she cites as sources. One of the things that you say, Katie Halper, in your article is that she, and you've just said it here too, is that she constantly uses as her sources paid lobbyists and austerity ideologues, and she right. portrays them as objective authorities. So, right. And it leads me to ask sort of, I guess, to be magnanimous, is this an era of fact-checking on the part of the New York Times, or is this no, their I mean, agenda? It's well, it's, it's yeah. an agenda, and the way reason we know this is because back in 2016, actually, and this is just something we happened to find out because someone noticed it, but there was an example of something that's called stealth editing, mm-hmm. and stealth editing is when you make changes to an article without updating it or acknowledging it. You know, you don't say at the end, a version of this article originally said ABC. Uh-huh. So... We saw that they did this in 2016. Someone happened to notice this, that an article that first came out with the headline, Bernie Sanders scored victories for years via legislative side doors. It was changed a couple hours later to a headline that said, via legislative side doors, Bernie Sanders won modest victories. Wow. So obviously the word modest was injected. The order was, was flipped. It deleted, the second version of the piece also deleted a positive quote from a campaign advisor and added two entirely new paragraphs that were negative about Sanders and portrayed him kind of as like pie in the sky and out of touch and not viable. And the public editor criticized this, both the changes and the lack of updating or lack of acknowledgement of them. And the editors, the deputy editors, they doubled down on it. They defended it and they said they wanted it to, they wanted to make sure that it, the piece said more about his realistic chances. So there you have the New York Times both trying to sneakily get away with with changes, and then once they're busted, they kind of, there's so much impunity, and there's so little accountability that they just say, yeah, we wanted to make it, you know, basically what they're saying is they wanted to make him look less realistic, less viable. Right. Um, And and people should also know that Ember, her entire uh, resume was limited to working at BlackRock, uh, she was an analyst for BlackRock, and BlackRock is the biggest investor in coal plant developers in the entire world. And her husband uh, is also an invest in the investment banking in the investment business, and was a senior associate consultant at Bain Capital. And his father was the CEO of Bain. Oh. And she came to the New York Times to do uh, media and finance reporting at this vertical called the Deal Book. And then in May 2018, she shifted into politics and and is now covering Sanders. And she just has so much contempt for him. So I think it's a perfect thing for the New York Times. They get a young woman who they can kind of hide behind, I think, 
to ask Sanders really unfair questions, to write about him in a really unfair way. And it's even better than just having op-eds against him because you really get to sneak this ideology into it. And people don't have their guards up, of course, when they're reading allegedly reported pieces. We saw this with another journalist named Yamichi Alcindor, who's now at PBS, but she was at the New York Times. And she wrote a piece that blamed Bernie Sanders, basically, for this shooting that happened that one of his supporters did indeed commit. And it was such an it was such a hit job that Clinton's comms people tweeted that it was terrible. They tweeted that, you know, Bernie Sanders had neither condoned nor incited violence. I mean, that's the type of people that the New York Times hires. And these are only the things we know about. Like, there's going to be so much more. Um, pressure to edit things behind the scenes that we don't know about. This is just one that we notice. And it's really interesting, Katie. It makes me think that like members of Congress, we should require that our reporters wear uniforms or have taglines that say who supports them, who sponsors them, you know, and what politics, because this is the opposite of, you know, the kind of coverage that we're hoping to get. And I was thinking as I was reading uh, your piece in Jacobin and also that was, uh, you know, brought from FAIR, Katie Halper, was that Jeremy Corbyn in Britain has been severely damaged by the campaign to label his critique of Israeli policy as anti-Semitic. It's a tougher sell with Bernie, who's a working class Jew whose parents are Holocaust survivors. But it doesn't mean that it hasn't been tried or won't continue to be tried. Do you see this as something that we're going to have to watch out for? Yeah, I mean, people are trying whatever they can. And and what's interesting is they'll both, I'm sure, accuse him of being an anti-Semite. They already kind of have, like they've said he's bad for Jews. They'd probably call him a self-loathing Jew as opposed to an anti-Semite. But they do that. And also, as people probably remember, Politico had an incredibly offensive piece about him that said he was, um, he may be cheap, but he's, but he's not poor. And it literally had a picture of him in front of a money tree. It had a picture of him in front of a tree with, instead of leaves, it had bills. Um, and it had him holding two houses and having another house coming out of his head. I think that what they've really done with Sanders, though, in terms of smearing is, and I don't know how much traction it has outside of certain media circles, but I think it does make a difference, is that this Bernie bro smear, which I've also written about, this Bernie bro narrative, portraying him as racist or sexist or homophobic in a really, and bad in identity politics. And look, every politician has to do better on this issue, but... His support is not a monolith of white, straight men, as much as people would like to to imply that. Right. We Um, only have about 30 seconds left, Katie. We've just quickly gone to the end, but I just wanted to quickly ask you if you think the kind of coverage, the smear job on Bernie is what we're going to see with all of his co-thinkers who have now been elected or about to be elected to Congress. I think if they're not straight white men, they actually have a bit of a problem. And we've seen that. (laughs) Which, yeah. All right. Well, Katie, on reactionary or something, but it's true. As always, terrific work, and I'm sorry we didn't have more time to cover it, but we'll have you back. I want to let the Thanks. listeners know that they can find your article on Jacobin, JacobinMag.com, or in Fair, and it is about the smear job that we've already seen. It's called yeah. Sydney Ember's Secret Sources at Fair, and I can't remember what the Jacobin title is, but you'll find it easily. Just look up Katie Halper, and, and Katie- my Twitter is KT Halp, letter K, letter T, H A L. Okay, and the Katie Halper Show is a podcast, and it's also on WBAI. And And SoundCloud and iTunes. Okay, thank you so much. Anything else I should mention, Katie, about where people can find you? Um, No, that's basically it. Katie Halper, SoundCloud, iTunes, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. 
And the other thing that I was going to say is that, yeah, well, I'll have to come back on to talk about Otto Reich so we can talk about this guy who was paid to to basically do PR for the Contras who, as you, Susie, know, raped and tortured and killed and skinned people okay. in Nicaragua. Yeah. And that's the next time we talk to Katie Halper. But for now, thanks so much for joining us, Thank Katie. You. I'm Susie Weisman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. And I'm speaking with Michelle O'Brien for the very first time. She has an article in the current summer issue of Commune magazine that is about junky communism. And its subtitle is No One is Disposable. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Michelle O'Brien is a parent, a writer, a teacher. She lives in Brooklyn. And she currently works with the New York City Trans Oral History Project. And she's helping to start a new queer communist journal called Pinko. And if you think that there's already too many journals out there, well, I think that's just not the case. And I also wanted to just highlight how great the summer issue of Commune magazine is. And you can find that at communemag.com. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Michelle O'Brien. Thank you. Okay. It's an honor to be here. Great. So let's just start with the way that you get into your article, which I think in some ways is about the idea of what Marx called the lumpen proletariat, that unless you're eligible or able to do standard work, you're sort of just out of it. And it's always considered somewhat of a problem. But in this instance, in today's neoliberal America, or really the world, it means that you're disposable, maybe a drug addict, and your life or your life is turned upside down by physical problems, and you can't have a standard life. And so one of the things that I think is highly original from your article is the way that you talk about how this really literally means that you're banned from the workers' movement. So if you can't get with the program, you're kind of out. And there's a quote that you have. It says, if the dignity of work is the basis of socialism, junkies unable to maintain stable employment have no place in the revolutionary movement. And this is sort of the heart of, I think, what your article is critiquing. So maybe if you could just begin by taking that quote and explain what's being represented and how you offer a critique of this position and essentially an alternative to it, one that begins to integrate the disposable, the junkies and the others into the politics of transformation. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I think that the struggle of working class people and people without wealth throughout the last couple hundred years has taken a lot of different forms. And what the vision of socialism or of communism has been really has evolved a great deal and has always been really contested. And that a particular vision of socialism really came together at the end of the 19th century and held itself together for nearly a century that um, focused on the dignity of work as being the basis of a new society. So through the experience of formal wage labor, the industrial working class was learning how to cooperate, learning how to produce the basic necessities of life, learning how to govern, developing respectability, forming stable families, and that they were demonstrating their 
their ability to rule society. And on some level, that meant winning the franchise in a lot of capitalist nations, winning the right to vote. And in a revolutionary vision, it meant winning a worker society where the experience of formal wage labor would become the general condition for everyone. And this is the historical backdrop for my article of really trying to think about what happens to poor people, what happens to those unable to work, what happens for those many, many people in the working class who are excluded from formal wage labor. And Marx was very concerned about this and talking about the reserve army of labor, but that is the condition for so many people now where folks go in and out of informal employment, in and out of stable jobs, where large numbers of people around the world are really not able to find formal work at all. And I'm interested in the kinds of socialist and communist politics that have emerged out of these struggles and experiences, because ultimately, as you know, someone who struggles with mental illness, as somebody who everyone in my life really struggles to hold down work in a variety of different kinds of ways, we need a communist politics that makes room for the complexity of our lives, for the ways that we're traumatized, for the ways that we struggle, for the ways that um, we are marginalized from work, and looking at some of the historical movements of people marginal in the labor market gives a way in for trying to think about a communist politics that welcomes in the broken, traumatized, struggling parts of all of us. And you begin the article with uh, the project of the Young Lords and the Black Panther Party and the way that they began in a very inspiring way to deal with this and to break down these barriers by initiating the first drug detox program in South Bronx to be, begin to deal with the city's heroin epidemic. And you described the experience and then explained what it was inspired by and led to a new set of ideas for looking at drug addicts. And the original practice was called People's Detox. Can you explain a little bit about what that meant or and the politics Absolutely. of it? So I learned about this history when I went and got a job at a syringe exchange in the South Bronx. And so I was working, helping people access clean syringes, helping people get into detox programs if they wanted. And I began to learn about the history of the detox programs where I referred people. And one of the aspects of that history was particularly inspiring and I think is a really remarkable story. Uh, the Young Lords were a Puerto Rican revolutionary nationalist and socialist organization that organized in New York City and elsewhere in the early 1970s, and they recognized very early on that drug addiction, heroin addiction, was a major epidemic in their communities, and were interested in finding ways of organizing that took the importance of the survival of drug users really seriously, and they believed that getting out of drug addiction, that revolutionary politics, revolutionary consciousness, and revolutionary education could play a very important role in that. In November 1970, they took over a section of Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx for the second time that year, and among their demands was establishing a people's detox, mm. so a detox program for uh, uh, drug users, particularly heroin users, that would incorporate radical political education into its detox program. They were collaborating with a group of radical nurses and doctors operating out of the hospital there, and they set up a detox program and won city funding for it the following year, 
And it was a remarkable and unusual detox program in a lot of ways. They pioneered the use of acupuncture, ear-based acupuncture, as a detox methodology there at the People's Detox at Lincoln Hospital. Since then, that methodology has become very common. Uh, acupuncture is a really important part of drug detoxing and harm reduction these days. They also incorporated uh, radical political education of the work of France Fanon and others into their detox program. And the group of militants, uh, members of the Black Panther Party, the Republic of New Africa, Africa, and the Young Lords, built this detox program and ran it for the next seven years until mm. a police raid in 1978 overturned the radical leadership and it became a less political detox program of Lincoln Hospital. This history is really was fascinating to me, in part because I was working in the syringe exchange program, referring people to this very detox, and um, because it was a way that the young lord showed a different kind of vision of communist struggle, one really rooted in poor communities, rooted in seeing seriously the broken, struggling parts of people's lives, and recognizing that in the, the, the struggles of active drug users, of people really locked into the, the misery of chaotic drug addiction, that how the left relates to active drug users says a tremendous amount about what our broader vision is of the kind of communist society that we want to build. Well, this is really sort of like the central part of what I wanted to get to, Michelle O'Brien. You talked about the way this radical needle exchange that came about literally as the AIDS crisis began to develop and take so many people and that you were involved in it. And it's somewhat analogous to the earlier period with the heroin epidemic. But And you describe its radical nature, but... It's also what you just said, Michelle, and that it, it's really also about how we have to transform our way of looking at these people who are, in essence, kind of disposable, and that it's been a very moralistic way of looking at them. And what you've laid out in your really inspiring article is a politics that, in your description, is about the people who are treating the drug addicts and HIV-positive community, but especially for the drug addicts and the ones you start out with. And we're talking about this in the context of opioid addicts now, but very little of what we talk about actually talks about the people themselves and why they are in this situation. So maybe you can just explain this in a sort of big picture way. We only have about six minutes, but go ahead. Sure. So in the 1980s, uh, really large numbers of uh, injection drug users were dying of AIDS very rapidly, and they're disproportionately very poor working-class people of color in major cities. And in many ways, um, there's a lot of evidence that the epidemic of AIDS had affected injection drug users as early as the early 1970s. And activists facing this started developing syringe exchanges as a means of saving people's lives. As an intervention goes, it's by far the most effective in reducing the spread of HIV and hepatitis C in injection drug user communities and really helps, helps save a lot of people's lives. AIDS activists started these illegal syringe exchanges in a bunch of major cities and then eventually won legalization and in some cases city funding to keep them going at great risk. 
And these syringe exchange programs um, were condemned by a lot of people in the drug rehab community on the theory and, and those who advocate the criminalization of drug use on the theory that if you have access to clean syringes, this might be an encouragement to keep using drugs. <laughs> and a lot of the thinking about how to work with drug users, if it's not locking people up, it's that the only path to any sort of uh, improvement in people's lives starts off with being completely abstinent from drugs. And these um, early AIDS activists recognized that complete abstinence wasn't a realistic goal for large numbers of people, and that syringe exchanges were direct affirmation that people's lives mattered regardless of whether they were using drugs or not. Many of these early AIDS activists were also injection drug users themselves, and I think implicit, and sometimes they would lay this out very explicitly, implicit in their activism was a real belief in the unconditional dignity of people's lives, that no one is disposable. That strikes me as a principle that's just essential for building a communist politics for the future, that rather than seeing uh, socialism as based on the dignity of work, asserting and defending the unconditional value of people's lives is a way of refusing the disposability that capitalism imposes on us. And embracing the unconditional value of people's lives is implicit in these practices of harm reduction in the work of the young lords uh, in opening the people's detox and needs to be built throughout our movements. And that harm reduction, as a, the syringe exchange program was called, offers one ethical approach to doing this. I argue that this is really strategically necessary as well as being morally necessary. It's strategically necessary to build the radical movements of the present and future because without that, if we are creating movements that call on everyone to be a very high-functioning, together person without serious problems in order to participate, we're really going to intensify the fragmentation and dissolution within the working class and really exclude huge numbers of people and probably exclude significant parts of ourselves. And that looking at harm reduction is a way of trying to think about the kinds of movements we need to build that create loving, supportive, transformative, and healing space for folks, whatever the struggles that we're facing are. This is pretty incredible and extremely radical, I have to say, because most people who talk about the future think of a world in which work becomes human's prime want, that we need to be engaged in some form of productive activity not tied to wage slavery or capitalism, but helps us realize our human potential. And you're positing something that you call junkie communism, which recognizes that all human life is worth what saving and for having with dignity, but the work doesn't necessarily have to be part of that equation. And that, in fact, this, I think you're saying, and we only have three minutes to clarify it, that, in fact, this notion that I just put forward still excludes too many people. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think 
We all need creative activity in our lives, and we can find many forms of doing that. And some of uh, that creative activity might take the form of some of the kinds of jobs we work now, but we shouldn't take our jobs as the template of a new society, that the place to start is in the solidarity and care we feel for each other and in the current efforts of marginalized people to defend their own lives, to defend the lives of people they love, and to build forms of collective solidarity that bring us all along and that create space of valuing unconditionally all of our lives. And that, that for me, is junkie communism. Okay. What kinds of social order grows out of that, we need to discover, we need to build, we need to imagine it. But the starting point is to be really committed to saving each other together collectively. Beautifully put. I just want to finally ask you, so did you choose Junkie Communism as the title of your article that appears in the summer issue of Commune magazine in a sort of provocative sense? Or tell me a little bit about why you decided to call it, it that. It, it's definitely provocative. Yes. In that, uh, when I worked at the Syringe Exchange, I never called anyone a junkie. Uh, it's mostly a derogatory phrase. Mm. Folks wouldn't often use it to refer to themselves. And I certainly don't imagine, in as we win communism, a dramatic increase in heroin use. Uh, in <laughs> some ways, I think chaotic heroin uh, use is very tied up with the miseries of the society in which we live. And I imagine drug addiction could significantly reduce under a more just society but that a communist politics emerging from the currently existing struggles of active drug users offers a saner, bolder, and fuller vision of communism than what we often discuss. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing this article and telling us about it. The uh, article is called Junkie Communism, but the subtitle is No One is Disposable. And I think that's the key, that the idea of solidarity has to include everyone and that, you know, if you have a vision of the future that doesn't include everyone, it may not be one worth uh, trying to put into practice. Is that it, <laughs> uh, Michelle? Absolutely. Thank you so yeah. much thank for that. Thank you so much for having me on. Really a pleasure, and congratulations on the article. Michelle O'Brien a parent, a writer, a teacher. She lives in Brooklyn, and she's currently working with the New York City Trans Oral History Project and helping to start a new queer communist journal called Pinko. We'll look forward to that. And thanks for joining us today, Michelle O'Brien. Absolutely. And Take I'm care. Su- Thank you. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. We're going to come right back with Chloe Watlington, and she's going to continue in this discussion about lives of despair, deaths of despair, and how we're going to change this. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to have Chloe Watlington back with us. She's the associate editor of Commune, which is a new magazine, a popular magazine for a new era of revolution. It has just come out with its third, and it will be its fourth print issue. They do four a year, so they're going to be celebrating their first year anniversary, and you can find it online at communemag.com. 
as the journal says, it can be found wherever enemies of the current order gather. Chloe's also written for The Baffler, The New Republic, Jewish Currents, and Teen Vogue. And she appeared right here previously to talk about Puerto Rico. But today, she's joining us to talk about her powerful article in this summer edition of Commune. It's called Who Owns Tomorrow? The tagline is For a Life Worth Living, which is also the tagline of the journal itself. It's a powerful article. I was very moved reading it. And it's about the many ways that American life has crumbled and looking at the human toll of despair that accompanies the brutality of what neoliberal capitalism in decline. Chloe chronicles all of that, including lower life expectancy, increasing mortality for the poor that are the result of shrinking opportunities to work or to work and earn enough to live. And she brings a very personal account to this story and is sharing it with us today. Chloe, welcome back. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for having me. Very pleased to have you. So let's just begin with, you know, what's happening right now, apart from the military parades that were on the 4th. It (laughs) is the 4th of July holiday weekend. And so normally it's this time to celebrate America. But instead, we're looking at, you know, essentially, I think what you would probably call the death of America. It's a reality check. So how does that sort of fit in with the topic of your article? That's right. It's the 4th of July, and everyone celebrated the birth of this country. But the irony of that is that this country has completely disintegrated in all the ways it's known for being great. And what I talk about in Who Owns Tomorrow is how we're collectively experiencing these years as a great downfall and the toll that it takes on our bodies and our minds, culminating in a life expectancy which has lowered for several years now in a row. And that's all due to the accumulation of preventable deaths and what people have begun to, de- to call deaths of despair. We really do have no way yet to name this moment. In previous periods, there was massive social catastrophes where the life expectancy lowered, as in World War I, the Great Depression, fall of the Soviet Union. And Deaths of Despair is an attempt to name what's happening there. The way you begin your article is with a story from Nazi Germany. And the quote is, the economy's defenestrating logic. To be employed is to be alive, but there isn't enough work for everyone. Can you kind of talk about what that means? Yeah, sure. I chose that word defenestrating because it really is as if you're being thrown out the window these days. It's an active verb. It's being done to us. It's not an emotion or an affect like despair. It is uh, people who are excluded from the labor force for long periods of time tend to have Well, I'll say it the other way. People who are in the labor force for an extended period of time tend to have stability, you know, health care, sometimes families, less divorce, these things. But people who are continually thrown out of the labor market, pulled back in, thrown out, pulled back in, the majority of those people are the ones who are reaching for drugs and alcohol as a way to self-medicate this disaster. And that's the logic that's creating these lowered life expectancies. It's really a self-medication of what's being done to them by the economy and the labor market. Well, you talk about it as, as if almost everything today conspires against the possibility of humans to really thrive. And you've just mentioned, Chloe, lowered life expectancy. So you've got self-medication through opioid addiction, drink, but it's really about despair. And in your article, you talk about the way it's easier to get drugs, alcohol, and guns than it is to get health care and a steady job. <laughs> Never mind, you know, what most of us really strive for, which is a job with dignity, something that you want to do. So maybe you could just start to go into all of that, and then we can bring it back to other areas. 
Yeah, sure. So obviously the main thing that comes with an uh, economy like this is inequality is rising. So what I trace in my article is that between 1980 and 2014, the income share of the richest 1% of Americans doubled. That was up from 10% to 20 but the bottom 50% was halved, so falling down from about 20% to 12%. So people are just repeatedly getting less and less. You know, the way that Robert Brenner says this is no one's gotten a raise in 20 years, which I really like. I think it taps into this level of status anxiety that we all fear. So, and the longer that inequality rises, so does the fixity of this status hierarchy. And social mobility declines. People have fewer, poor parents have fewer likelihood of having kids who rise out of their class situation, and then fewer rich parents are able to keep their kids in that class. So you see an actual change in the demographic shift of these lower life expectancies where the middle class white men uh, who are joining the ranks of lowered life. And this is really kind of, you know, as you catalog it, Chloe Watlington, the death of the American dream, which is this notion that kids will always do better than their parents, and that this dream is something that's attainable. So you're basically saying that the way of life today is one of, and you say it fairly starkly, and I think you say something that it's like capital punishment for the poor. Could you talk about why you use these kinds of terms? Some people might think that this is I don't know, exaggerated, but on the other hand, the way that you're describing it, and we'll get to it, how it, it, it hits personally. Can you talk about what that means, this sort of capital punishment for the masses? Yeah, so it doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely as death or despair, but I, I'm, for now I'm calling it capital punishment for those who fall down in a winner-take-all society. And that's because I really want to emphasize the hostile labor market, the bad economy, not the emotion of despair, because it's true that we're without hope, and that's why people are dying, but it's without hope in capitalism, not in humanity. And in my experience, it's not a lack of hope in each other. Most people who commit suicide or fall to opioids do it because it's so easy. It's so easy to access fentanyl. It's so easy to get a gun. And they feel alone in their despair. They feel like they're the only ones around them who are having this repeated problem of getting laid off or getting sucked into gig economy and then sucked back out again when laws change around the gig economy or something like this. It's not because they lack a community of care or love. It's really about this losing hope in capitalism, losing hope in America, being able to provide for them the social services necessary to survive. One of the things that we know about today is that the millennial generation, in more than a majority, thinks that socialism would be preferable to capitalism. And I think <laughs> it, it always goes between 54 to 64 percent, depending on the poll, but that's a large number of people. Would you say that that's because capitalism has completely failed this generation? I do, I do. I think that it's, you know, communism and socialism are the words on everyone's lips. And I think we have yet to really come together in civil society and invent new ways of finding each other. I talk about this in my article about the neoliberal atomization, how it's created the kind of loss of public spaces. Right, and evaporation and, of public life, you say as well. Maybe you can say a little bit about, it cuts to the end of the article, and I want to go back, but how has the decline in public spaces, let's say, and public life, except for those that are organized around pay and profit, 
affected the larger community? Yeah, I think that it has made it so that people feel like they're in this alone when really no one person can change life on their own. We need to change life as a collective, and we don't have the trade union halls and the even the churches or any of these things that really pack the labor market with a kind of sense of community. But that doesn't mean that people are just lying down and taking it. We're actually seeing a moment where people en masse are fighting it. I would say we're in a strike wave, actually, and that's really exciting that that's happening without the kind of unity afforded to the labor movement. But it could be an interesting way to start to address this issue of capital punishment in a winner-take-all society is by figuring out and inventing new ways to find each other. And that's why in my article I talk about these cool bodegas in the Dominican neighborhoods of Puerto Rico, which are the poorest neighborhoods, so they don't have the kind of nightlife and the bar scene that that, uh, San Juan has to offer everyone. And so what they do is at night in the bodegas, they just turn down the lights and, like, shine a light on a disco ball, which is there all day long, but you don't really notice it until they turn the lights on. Uh And then they pull out these little plastic chairs, and they all meet, and they talk about their lives. They talk about what's going on. Yeah. So they find solidarity and community without any of the sort of, I guess, as you would say, the accoutrements of, uh, of even having a hall or a dance place or anything else. They just do it. Yeah. You know, I have to just say, as you were saying this, when I was growing up, it seems like really in another era, but we had a public space in our town. And in that town, every single Friday night, there was a dance there. But during the day, people could go and play various kinds of sports or just hang out and talk. And it was a gathering center. That place is now long closed. And I I often think about what do high school kids and junior high kids do on the weekends or on the evenings. They don't have a place to go and they have no sort of organized public life. Yeah. And imagine if we had that, how easy it would be to check in on each other. Exactly. So can we take this then, Chloe, because we're talking about all the things that conspire against human flourishing and is the tagline of your article about who owns tomorrow, about talking about a life worth living. And you have a very sort of personal take on this. And I and I kind of want to go there because it's also a discussion about how cruel the current word, and you said something about how people who are in despair haven't given up on hope and love in their social relations with people, but the system itself conspires to make them feel alone and they have no one to go to. And even in the personal case of your brother, you talk about somebody who was constantly trying to improve his life. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So that title, Who Owns Tomorrow, is a kind of collage of things from a movie that in German is called Kula Pampa, but it's subtitled in English as Who Owns the World. And Breck wrote the screenplay. It's actually on YouTube if anyone wants to watch it. I highly recommend it. And last spring I, I did, as you mentioned, I lost my brother to a self-inflicted gun wound or suicide, but I don't really think that that gets at the situation well. And I watched this movie right after that happened, and it really resonated with me because it's about a brother and sister traveling through Depression-era Berlin, and they're on their bicycles, and they're looking for work, and they're looking for work, and they go to every storefront, and the woman shakes their finger at them, not here, not here, not here, and they get rejected at every turn. And Annie goes off and meets up with friends, and her brother, Franz, goes to dinner. He eats dinner. Everyone leaves. And then he just jumps out the window. He takes off his watch, puts it on the table, and jumps out the window. 
And in the scenes that follow, Annie just keeps returning to that table, and his empty seat is like this blaring thing, like staring back at him. And the song is playing over and over again, Who's Tomorrow is Tomorrow. Mm. So I titled the piece Who Owns Tomorrow, not Who Owns the World, because I want to pack my politics and what's happened to me with futurity, but also questions. Like, we have to be asking each other questions about the future and what's, what's to be done. How do we get towards this life worth living? How do we get so that people aren't just suddenly flinging themselves from windows, as Franz did and as my brother did? And that's the defenestrating logic that you talk about, because in this case, Franz really did just, he was thrown out the window or threw himself out the window. And as a metaphor, it's very powerful. And it's also powerful, of course, because I know you, Chloe, and I know what uh, your brother's death has meant. But you're very quick to say that your brother is not alone in any of it, not in his own despair or difficulties. And you bring up the role that the debt collectors played in his not immediate cause of his demise, but certainly a really big factor in the way that he organized his life. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So when you have a lot of student debt, if you work a regular job, what happens is your wages just get brandished, no matter what that job is. So my brother never finished college, so he didn't have the offers of a high-paying job at ready. So he would work these like medium-level jobs and if he worked them for more than six months, then his wages would start being brandished. So he stopped working every six months and went on tour with jam bands and sold food, which he really loved doing. But at the same time, it was a tiring life, and it was a life that I think he wouldn't have chosen if, you know, I think he would have wanted the stability of having regular health care and not having to redo bureaucratic forms every six months and remake his life every six months. Uh, and I think a lot of people are in this situation, especially people who aren't able to actually finish college but still carry that massive debt on them. And one of the reasons I continually say he's not alone is because in the year he died, it was the third year in a row that CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, announced this decrease in the average life expectancy, which, by the way, happened in 2015 rose a little bit again, then happened again in 2016, 17, and 18. So Mm. in 2017, 47,000 people committed suicide. That's 120 people a day. Wow. Over half a million others tried, but they didn't succeed. And in this case, if it was literally the initial causal factor that organized your brother Rodney's life was in fact, his student debt, because he had to organize his own employment so as to evade the debt collectors. And there was a cruel irony the day after he died. Can you share that? Yeah, sure. So it wasn't the next day, but when you die, your debts don't just get absolved. They actually go on to your family members, your, your mothers, your husbands, your wives. And also, death is quite expensive. There's no real social services for death. So the family has to pay for everything themselves. And so it's a really torturous time because you're grieving, but you're also like having to constantly be basically going into debt yourselves, dealing with it. And yeah, so a debt, a debt collector called my mother as they do like clockwork every few days. And she said, you know, he's died. Uh, we've lost him. And they said, I'm sorry, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, change the terms of contract. Which is, I think, shocking. Anyway, 
it's very much a metaphor for what you bring. And so we only have about a minute left, Chloe, but I thought maybe you could tell us how that has, I guess, fortified your interest in changing this world and how you see a world that's worth living. Yeah, so I think that I'm constantly, when I'm thinking about world building or communism or a post-capitalist future, I'm imagining the life that my brother, also my father, which is in the story, who owns tomorrow, didn't, didn't get. And I build a world around the life that they would have wanted, a life with leisure, free time, community, music, theater, a vibrant life. And that's where I put my political stance, is, is not creating a a super efficient or planned or perfect world, but a world that is worth sticking around for. Chloe Watlington, thank you so much for sharing that personal and political story with us. You can find her article that's called Who Owns Tomorrow in the summer issue of Commune Magazine. And you're going to want to read Commune Magazine. It's a popular magazine for a new era of revolution is what it's called. And you can find it and information on how to subscribe and everything else at CommuneMag.com. Chloe is the associate editor of Commune Magazine, and she's written elsewhere widely and uh, has joined us right here before. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chloe Watlington. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.